The climax of Old Testament prophecy is the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom on Earth, where Israel will have a place of special blessing in enjoying the total fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant. But many in the church world reject the literal fulfillment of these prophecies. They change their meaning, saying these promises to Israel are to be spiritualized and are to be fulfilled in the church. The entry of allegorization into church history allowed the church to develop this false theology called replacement theology. It says that God no longer has a special role for Israel as a nation, for the church has now replaced Israel as his covenant people. This is a serious error of pride and boasting over Israel which the Apostle Paul specifically warns against in Romans 11. Replacement theology says that although God made promises to national Israel, he later revealed that he really intended them to be promises to the church, not Israel. One line of reasoning is that because of Israel's unfaithfulness, Israel forfeited her rights to the promises, so God changed his mind and transferred them to the church instead. This is impossible because God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Replacement theology is unacceptable because it makes God a liar, a deceiver, and covenant breaker, and he's not like that. To make this accusation against God impugns his integrity and casts doubt on his faithfulness. Paul rejects this view in Romans chapter 3 verse 3 and 4 he says what then if some did not believe their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God will it may it never be rather let God be found true though every man be found a liar God must remain faithful to his promises to Israel just as he's faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him if God made promises to Israel he is not later free to say Although I gave these promises to Israel, I really didn't mean Israel, but another group of people. Let's say I made a promise to John to give him a thousand pounds. Then later I say, I know I made that promise to you, John, but really I had David in my mind for that promise. So I will call David Spiritual John, and so I will keep my word by fulfilling the promise to Spiritual John. What nonsense! And yet that's exactly what many say God does concerning Israel. They say that the church is now the new Israel. So God's promises to Israel are now fulfilled by the church, which is spiritual Israel, which has now replaced natural Israel in the promises and covenants of God. Calling the church spiritual Israel is not biblical terminology. Although Israel is a type of the church, spiritual Israel refers to the believing remnant of Israel. Calling the Gentile part of the church spiritual Israel just brings confusion. To speak of spiritual Israel as the church in contrast to natural Israel elevates the church at the expense of Israel, denigrating her as being fleshly and carnal in contrast to the spiritual church. The Bible does talk about the Israel of God, but again, that's not referring to the church. It's talking about the believing remnant of Israel. We shall see that the New Testament gives no support for replacement theology. Instead, we consistently see two distinct chosen peoples of God, Israel and the church, and that God has a distinct plan and program for each. Israel's miraculous rebirth as a nation in 1948 in literal fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies is a major sign that God is still the God of Israel and that he has not finished with Israel. She is still very much in God's plans.
The church is something different from Israel. Israel is a nation whose membership is defined by natural descent, whereas membership in the church is defined by a person's faith in Christ. Another way to see the church as distinct from Israel is that in the New Testament, the church is something new, whereas Israel, of course, had been around for thousands of years. The church is called a new man, a new creation in Christ. Israel came into existence as a nation at the Exodus, but the church was newly born, coming into being on the day of Pentecost in AD 33, and that's in Acts 2. In Acts 11, verse 15 and 16, Peter said about the first Gentile members of the church that the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. What beginning was he referring to? It was the beginning of the church in Acts 2. So the church is something new. It's not a continuation of Israel. In Matthew 16:18, Jesus announced that he would build a new entity, his church, which was not yet in existence. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Notice when he said, I will build my church, it's in the future tense. So at this point, there was no such thing as the church. When he said, upon this rock I will build my church, he was pointing to himself as the rock, as the foundation of this new building or temple of God. The church is not built on Peter or the papacy, but on Christ himself. For when anyone believes on the risen Christ, he is put into Christ and becomes a living stone that is part of this temple of God called the church. And Jesus became the foundation for the church by dying for our sins and rising again as the head of a new creation, having established a new covenant in himself in his blood. And so until he had completed this, until he had died and risen again, his church could not exist. Interestingly, straight after announcing the building of his church in verse 18, in verse 21, he began to predict his death and resurrection, which was necessary for his church to be built. So the church of Christ could not exist until Christ died, for it is built upon Christ and his blood. Likewise, Jesus also predicted the church in connection with his death in John 10, 14 to 16. He said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, that's believing Gentiles, which are not of this fold, that is Israel. I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock, that's the church, made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. One flock with one shepherd, Jesus, of course. The church is called a new creation in Christ, the one new man, only made possible because of the blood of Christ. In Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, Paul talks about the historic separation between Gentiles and Jews. But then in verse 13 to 16, he describes how God united them both by making them both part of one new man in Christ, namely the church. God did this through Christ's death on the cross. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were formerly f were far off from God and from the Jews have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups, that's Jew and Gentile, into one in Christ, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, that's the Jews and the Gentiles, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body, that's the church, 
to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. In this passage, he describes all humanity as being divided between Jews and Gentiles, but then introduces the new man, which is something different from both groups. The new man is the body of Christ, the church, comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles in Christ. This new man only became a reality through Christ's death. Again, we see the three distinct groups, Israel, the Gentiles, and the new man in Christ. Moreover, the church could not come into being until Christ was raised from the dead, for he's the head of the body, the church, and he only became the head of the church by virtue of his resurrection, according to Ephesians 1, 20-23, which says, God raised him, Christ, from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, and then it says he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body also according to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 to 13 the church only became fully functional after Christ's ascension when he poured out his spirit and distributed the ministry gifts to the members of the body it says that when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men, some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry until the body of Christ grows together to the full maturity of Christ. Therefore, since the church was only properly constituted until Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of the Spirit, she must be a distinct entity from Israel. The New Testament calls the church a mystery hidden in God from the foundation of the world. A New Testament mystery is something that had been hidden in ages past but was now revealed. In Ephesians 3, Paul says, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery, which in other generations or ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy prophets and apostles in the Spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Thus the church was a mystery hidden in God during Old Testament times and was only revealed in the New Testament. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. You will never find a direct reference to the church in the Old Testament for it was God's secret hidden in the Godhead. Since the church did not exist before Christ's coming and was not even known about or prophesied, it is clearly something different from Israel. Thus the nature of the church as a mystery means that it did not exist in the Old Testament, neither is it a continuation of Israel, but it is something quite new and distinct from Israel. The New Testament never confuses Israel with the church or with Gentiles. It never refers to the church as Israel, neither does it call believing Gentiles Jews or spiritual Jews. There is no such confusion of language. Scripture is consistent in its use of terms, because God is a good and clear communicator. All uses of the word Israel in the New Testament refer to Israel, not to the church. The apostles never used Israel as a synonym for the church. The terms New Israel or Spiritual Israel are never used. While Israel may be used as a type of the church, and we can learn from their experiences, look for instance 1 Corinthians 10:11. nevertheless the church is never referred to as Israel. The word Jew occurs nearly 200 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to Jews, both believing and unbelieving Jews. The term has never changed its meaning.
Out of all of these, Romans 2, 28 and 29 is the only passage that uses this term in a special sense, saying, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul here plays on the meaning of the word Jew, which is from Judah, which means praise. He's saying that to be a true Jew, it's not enough to be one outwardly, but also inwardly, so that he has the praise of God. Paul is not extending the use of Jew to Gentiles, rather he is restricting the use to believing Jews. He's saying that a true Jew is not just a Jew by birth, but one who lives up to his name, who is both a Jew outwardly according to the flesh and inwardly according to the heart. He is not calling believing Gentiles Jews. We use the word Christian in the same ways. Firstly, in a general sense, it's anyone who calls himself a Christian. But also it can be used in the special sense of a true Christian, whose faith is not just nominal, but of the heart. For example, when we say, if you're a Christian, you would forgive them if you're a true Christian, that is. Of the 77 New Testament passages naming Israel, or Israelite, 75 use the word in the normal way. Only two passages use Israel in a special sense. The first is Romans 9, 6-8, which says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. When he says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, he is again using Israel, both in its general and in its special, more limited sense. Generally, Israel consists of all Jews, but the true Israel, the Israel of God, are all the Jews who are also believers. This is also known as the remnant of Israel. All Jews are part of the elect nation of Israel, but only believing Jews, who are individually elect for salvation according to the election of grace, are part of the Israel of God. Again, there's an allusion to the meaning of the name Israel, which God gave Jacob, and which means God is Prince, signifying his faith. Therefore, to be a true Israelite requires more than the right physical descent, but also having the faith of Israel. So Paul is really saying, they are not all true Israel which are of Israel. We communicate something similar when we say, they are not all true Christians who call themselves Christians. Thus here Paul is restricting the name Israel to those Jews who have the spiritual qualification of faith as well as the natural qualification of birth. He is not extending the use of Israel to include believing Gentiles. Elsewhere in this chapter, Paul uses Israel in the normal sense of all those physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, including unbelievers. The only other passage where Israel is used in a special restricted sense is Galatians chapter 6, 15 and 16, which says, For in Christ Jesus neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. Paul here is referring to two groups of people. Firstly, there are uncircumcised Gentiles who are now new creations in Christ. 
Secondly, there are circumcised Israelites who have come to faith in Christ, and these latter ones are the Israel of God. Paul is saying both are equal in Christ because all that really matters is the new birth, not a religious rite. Thus the two groups with different backgrounds are one in Christ. Those who say the Israel of God is the church, rather than the believing remnant of Israel, do so against all the evidence. First of all, nowhere else in scripture is Israel used as a name for the church. Elsewhere, Israel always means Israel or the believing part of Israel. So Paul would be inconsistent if he suddenly decided to call the church by the name of Israel. Secondly, to support this view, they have to change the straightforward meaning of the, of the text. Paul speaks peace upon the believing Gentiles, for whom circumcision has no importance, and upon the Israel of God. The and here clearly signifies he's addressing two groups, the believing Gentiles and the believing Jews. To get around this, and to make the Israel of God refer to the church, they have to change the translation of the Greek word kai from and to even, to make it say, as many as walk according to this rule, peace be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. Unfortunately, the, that's exactly what the NIV does. However, this Greek word almost always means and, not even. So you need a strong justification to make this change, but there isn't one. In fact, the natural reading is and, and upon the Israel of God. Had Paul wanted to establish such an important and novel point as identifying the church with Israel, he could and surely would have done so by using unambiguous language. Let's now look at Romans 9 to 11, the major passage on the relationship between Jews, Gentiles, and the church. In it, Paul never refers to the church as Israel. He even uses the name Israel to distinguish unbelieving Jews from believing Gentiles. He never calls believing Gentiles Jews. Although they are in the church, they remain as Gentiles. And Israel only consists of Jews. Therefore, by its use of language, the New Testament upholds the, the distinct identity of Israel, the Gentiles, and the church. In Romans 9, Paul introduces the problem of Israel's unbelief concerning the Messiah. In verses 3 and 4, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Notice in verse 4 and 5, he uses the present tense. He says, Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Despite her unbelief, Israel still possesses all these things, including the covenants, showing that God is not finished with Israel. He continues by saying, Israel stands because of divine election, upon God's unconditional choice and grace, not because of her own merits. Therefore, her preservation and future is assured. He explains that as well as the election of the nation of Israel, there is the election of individuals who believe for salvation, both Jew and Gentile. Even though much of Israel was in unbelief, her election guarantees that there will always be a remnant who believe, the Israel of God, through whom God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled.
This remnant consists of those members of the elect nation who are also individually elect. Paul says that although Israel as a whole was in unbelief, she had not lost her election as a nation. This was shown by the fact that there was still a remnant who believed. Therefore, he was confident that Israel has a future and would be saved. So in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Then in Romans 11, verse 1 and 2, he asks, God has not rejected his people Israel, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew that, or elected. So God is not finished with Israel. Then in verse 5 and 6 he says, Israel will stand, not because of her own righteousness, but because she is elect of God. He says, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. In verse 7, Israel is used for Jews who rejected Christ and so are certainly not the church, confirming that Israel is not a name for the church. He says, what then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen of Israel obtained it, and the rest were hardened. In, in verse 11, Paul affirms that Israel's present state of unbelief is just temporary. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. As he continues in verses 11 to 14, he keeps a consistent contrast between Jews and Gentiles, even when the Jews don't believe and the Gentiles do. He says, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Notice Gentiles stay as Gentiles and do not become Jews after believing. Neither does Paul say that believing Gentiles become part of Israel. Then in verse 15, Paul says that although Israel is in a present state of rejection, she will again be accepted and her acceptance will release great blessing upon the world in the messianic kingdom. Then in Romans 11:25 and 26, Paul proclaims the full and final restoration of Israel. He says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Israel here stands in contrast to the Gentiles. It obviously does not refer to the church, but to the Jewish nation. Notice Israel's spiritual blindness is both partial, for there's always a remnant who believe, and temporary, for it's only for a time until God has accomplished his present purpose, the ingathering of the fullness of the Gentiles. After that, her unbelief will be removed, and Israel will believe in Jesus as Messiah, and so will be saved. So although Israel has been blinded in unbelief, the day is coming when all Israel, or Israel as a whole, or Israel as a nation, will be saved. So clearly, there is a future for Israel in God's purposes. These verses describe a two-phase program of God for the salvation of two distinct people groups. In the present church age, the main focus is on the salvation of the Gentiles. 
When the fullness of the Gentile harvest is gathered in, the church will be raptured, and then, in the tribulation, the focus moves to Israel's salvation, so that by its end, at the return of Christ, all Israel will be saved. This national salvation of Israel at the coming of the Messiah is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In verse 28, Paul makes it clear that even though Israel is in unbelief, she is still the elect chosen nation of God. It says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, in unbelief. But from the standpoint of God's choice or election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. In verse 29, he explains why. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We like to apply this verse to ourselves, but it's actually saying that God has not withdrawn or changed his mind about his gifts, that is, his covenant promises to Israel, or his election, or calling upon Israel. God will literally fulfill his covenant promises to Israel, and Israel will fulfill her destiny, for her divine election guarantees her future. Whatever blessings the church enjoys in Christ, they do not nullify God's promises to Israel. So Romans chapters 9 to 11 declares that God has not finished with Israel. Although Israel stumbled for a time because she didn't accept the Messiah, she will rise again and receive the Messiah and all Israel will be saved and God will fulfill his covenant promises to her. Now we can understand why Paul introduces the subject of Israel at this point in Romans after he's just presented the glorious gospel with its triumphal climax at the end of Romans 8 saying, who will separate us from the love of Christ? This assurance is based on the relentless grace of God described in verses 29 and 30. It says, for those whom he foreknew, or that's election, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those he called he also justified, and these, those whom he justified he also glorified. Having declared that whatever happens, God will be faithful to fulfill his promises to us, to glorify us, he knew that an objection would immediately spring up. And what is that objection? They will be asking, well, what about Israel? Didn't God make promises to her as well? But they don't seem to be coming to pass. If God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel, how can we be sure that he'll bring it to pass for us? And Paul answered this objection in Romans chapters 9 to 11. That's why he wrote them. By saying that although Israel has stumbled temporarily in unbelief, she will be saved and God will fulfill his purposes for her and his promises to her because it all rests on God's election according to grace and not on works. Likewise, even though we're imperfect, God will fulfill his gracious promises to us. But if replacement theology was true, the objection still stands, robbing us of our assurance. If God was not able or faithful to fulfill his promises to Israel, what basis do we have for believing he will fulfill them for us? For all we know, Romans 8 just expresses good intentions that will never be fulfilled. If Israel was disqualified through being unworthy, surely the same will be true for us. Therefore, our destiny and the destiny of the church as a whole is bound up with Israel. We will stand or fall with her. If Israel falls, then God is unfaithful to his word and we are also doomed. If Israel stands against all odds, then God is true and he will be true to us too and he will surely glorify us.